Well, good morning. We're still in the book of Exodus, and it's Exodus chapter 20. Uh, We have finished up with the Ten Commandments, and we're looking at what happened, if you want to say so, on the other side of the Ten Commandments, while Israel was still gathered at Mount Sinai. But before we jump into that, this will give you time to, to find chapter 20. Uh, how do you respond when somebody tells you to do something? If your boss tells you to do something, maybe you respond with a nod and a smile, but an inner <sighs> sigh. Maybe with your wife, it's a grunt, and you think, I'll get to it sometime. Uh, A child's response at first may not be yes sir or yes ma'am, but a whimper or a whine or a do I have to? I know you all may have experienced that, really. (laughs) So that's kind of what we experience. Well, what is the proper response when God gives the command? I think that the proper response, as we see, is really twofold. A fear of God and worship of God. But it's not just any sort of fear and not just any sort of worship. I talked about the fear of God the last time I spoke and how the fear of God kind of has us on one hand knowing that we have no business being in the presence of God, yet on the other hand, knowing that He has made us to be in His presence. Our hearts are restless until we rest in Him. And there's a difference, as I, I explained this last time, there's a difference between being frightened of God and fearing God. Fearing God is this controlling sense of majesty, of holiness, uh, understanding how holy God is, and a profound reverence that flows from Him. The fear of God is a joy-filled reverence and and awe, and awe of the one true God. And that fear of God is an awe that shakes us to the very core of our being. That's the fear of God that brings forth a response of faith and of love. And so if you fear God, there's no reason to be frightened of Him. But if you do not fear God, there's every reason to be frightened of Him. The second response to God's commands well, that response is worship, but and that's what we're going to look at today. But it's not just any type of worship. And I get caught up in this, but I, I so many times we tend to think that worship is measured by how we feel in worship. How was worship today? Well, it made me feel joyous inside. How did I feel while I was singing? How did I feel while I was listening to the message? 
Do you notice who the focus is in these questions? How did I feel? But actually, I would argue that worship is measured by how God feels when we worship Him. What does God think of our worship? I mean, it's, it's good to be sincere. It's good to experience the love and the joy in worship. But I would argue that God's experience as we worship is far more important than ours. And I would say that there are things that we must do and other things that we're not to do if we're to worship God rightly in spirit and in truth. So let's look at Exodus chapter 20 verses 22 through 26. This is what it says. Then the Lord told Moses, This is what you are to say to the Israelites. You have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You must not make gods of silver to rival me. You must not make gods of gold for yourselves. You must make an earthen altar for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats, as well as your cattle. I will come to you and bless you in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. If you make a stone altar for me, you must not build it out of cut stones. If you use your chisel on it, you will defile it. You must not go up to my altar on steps so that your nakedness is not exposed on it. Wow. Let's start breaking this down. I'm, look at verse 22 just to begin with. I want to point out something here that worship is word-based. Word-centered. The Lord said, told Moses, This is what you are to say to the Israelites. You have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. Now that seems like a strange turn of words, doesn't it? I mean, I would have thought that, that God would have said, You've heard that I have spoken to you from heaven, as opposed to you've seen. So why is that here? He's using the verb seen to talk about another verb that's not related to seeing, but to speaking. But he wants to emphasize something, is that what they have seen is that God has spoken. So they didn't see something visibly. In other words, they saw that God did not appear to them visibly, but that he spoke to them. Yeah, he spoke to them from Mount Sinai rather than appearing in a visible form. He spoke to them out of the dark cloud. The meeting with God uh, had been entirely auditory. God speaking, Israel listening. And if you look at it, God spoke to them. God didn't speak from Mount Sinai. They were at Mount Sinai, but God spoke from heaven. This is the transcendent God, the God who is not contained in a mountain or a place. 
He's not limited to a particular location. And what's significant here, both in the speaking or God's revealing, is that this was determinative for the way that Israel would worship. Israel's worship would be totally word-based. And that, that means two things. It means it made it clear that Israel's worship would be word-derived. Israel's worship would be derived from the Word of God, filled up with the Word of God. And it was a non-visual worship. And as I already mentioned, the second point was it's the worship of, of a God who's not a local deity, a local God, not bound to any location, but the God of heaven and earth. The worship is word-based. And so the very first things that God begins to teach after the commandments are things about worship and about an altar. Now why would God talk about an altar right after he's given the commandments? Well, God had saved Israel to worship. He had redeemed Israel for worship. He had created Israel for worship. He had created man for communion. But sin had marred this possibility of what I would un, un, uh, unhindered fellowship with God. And so God immediately begins talking about altars because we need a way to approach God that is mediated. A way that we can come into the presence of God even with our sin. And so the first instruction on worship that God talks about is you must not make gods of silver to rival me. You must not make gods of gold for yourselves. You see, we see that, that the worship of God is only to be offered to the true God. The worship of God is to be offered to Him and Him alone. The one true God spoke to Israel from Mount Sinai. They had heard Him. And this should evoke an unqualified obedience in the hearts of all the Israelites. Now what's happening here is that God's really combining uh, the first and second commandments into one when he says, you must not make gods of silver to rival me. You must not make gods of gold for yourselves. Worship God and worship God alone and do not worship God by images. So this really prohibits the worship of anything else other than the one true God. It prohibits the making of gods as well as the making of visible images of gods, no matter how beautiful they look, made of gold or of silver, even if they're meant to be representations of the one true God. God says no. I find it, it's, I think it's quite ironic that 
if you read on through Exodus, a few chapters from now, we find the story of Israel breaking that commandment explicitly, really over and over again. Our worship of God, this command makes clear, is not to be associated with visual forms. And here I would argue that God places severe restrictions on the human creativity in worship. We are not, he says, to copy the other nations, however clever, however beautiful their idols may be. We're told to bind ourselves to his word, to observe his prohibitions. And Israel's worship was to be exclusively given to the one true God. I mean, this is the reason that the reformers criticized the use of images in worship in their own times. Word-based worship was the point. We worship God according to the word. There are two, I will, two um, dramas that he has given us that are more visual. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Other than that, worship is word-based. We need to hear this warning, I think, because we are tempted to have our own false gods. We're tempted to let other things fill up the space in our lives that God ought to occupy. Let me just ask this question, or you ask it to yourselves. What am I hoping for? What am I counting on? What gives my life meaning? Where do I get my personal sense of value, my personal sense of worth? Where do I turn when I need comfort? These are questions I think we need to keep asking ourselves because it's so easy for us to manufacture our own gods and let them replace the one true God in these situations. And there's a lot of talk about being tolerant in today's culture, isn't there? I mean, you can't turn on the the news bill without hearing the word of tolerant or intolerant or you're too intolerant. Well, I would also argue that when it comes to worship, God is not tolerant. God will not tolerate the worship of any other gods. He refuses to share his glory. If any gods deserved glory, it would be wrong for God to be, to be intolerant. But no other gods deserve glory. So God has every right to be intolerant of the worship of other gods. And so God commands us again and again to act and live in a way that we are worshiping Him, in Him alone. You know, the Israelites heard God speak from heaven. They met Him on a mountain in fire and smoke. They experienced His splendor and glory. 
think about it. How could anything that we are tempted to look at, no matter how precious it is, how shiny or how well made, how could anything ever compare with the real beauty and the real majesty of God? The things on earth cannot compare with the glories of heaven. I just can't. Now, having reissued the commands, reminded them about the commands of idolatry, God gave Moses a second set of instructions. He says, you're to make an earthen altar for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats, as well as your cattle. Now, why did God insist on having an altar, an altar made of earth and rough stones, rather than crafting them with tools? And what's wrong with raising an altar up on steps? Well, the answer here again is that God wanted to keep his people from worshiping like the pagans, like the, the to keep them from worshiping like the idol worshiping cultures around him. You see, making altars out of squared blocks, building stepped up pyramids, worshiping naked, these were common practices for the cultures around Israel. The Canaanites, when they worshipped, they did it on altars of finished stone, built for show. And we know that the Canaanite worship itself was very obscene, combining idolatry with ritual prostitution. Uh, But God wanted his people to worship him rightly. And this meant avoiding even the appearance of idolatry. It meant making altars from the earth and stone that he had created. It also meant staying fully clothed. In fact, God would later uh, inform or instruct the priest to wear linen undergarments to preserve their modesty. Um, I mentioned just a minute ago as we read on through how Israel kept falling away from these instructions. And just to give one example, in the book of Second Kings, you'll find the story of King Ahaz's idolatry. King Ahaz has uh, uh, gone to Damascus, and he sees this awesome Assyrian temple that's been built there. And he sends word back, you know, our temple is pretty plain. Set it aside. Here are the plans for this fancy uh, Assyrian uh, Damascus Assyrian altar. So he sends plans and instructions to basically get rid of the God-ordained altar and in its place construct an Assyrian-style altar. How far away did they go from disobeying God's commands? God says, I won't have this for Israel. Now notice verse 24. Toward the end, it says, I will come to you and bless you in every place 
where I cause my name to be remembered. Basically, he's saying, when you do what I say, I will come to you. And that's what worship is about. Meeting with God. He's saying, you obey me. You worship me according to the word. You seek my face. And I will meet with you. You think about, to me, one of the greatest promises in the Bible. I will be your God. And you will be my people. It's a foretaste of the eternity of glory. You know, although we're no longer to build altars for sacrifice, there are principles for us to apply. And one is that God alone has the right to determine how we worship. The Israelites were not allowed to build any old altar. They had to build it according to God's instructions. And we're under a similar obligation when we worship. And I would say often this means that what we do in church is different than what we see the culture around us doing. Far too many people's thinking about worship and evangelism begins with the opposite assumption. Thinking that we should try to fit in with the culture as well as we can. And then they'll like us. And then we can reach out to them. But in the same way that God told Israel not to be like the Canaanites, He tells us not to pattern our worship based on the surrounding culture. You know, God does not want His people to build a fancy altar that will distract from real praise. All He asks is a simple altar, rough stones that He created. What God requires from us is to worship Him in the ordinary acts of singing songs and singing hymns, prayers, petitions, celebrating the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, giving tithes and offerings, the reading and hearing of God's Word, and nothing to be done for show. And realize again that worship is meeting with God. And I found a quote from uh, Dr. Ligon Duncan that uh, really struck me. And he says this, The worship of God involves, at its heart, meeting with God to praise and thank Him and to receive blessing. And therefore, nothing should happen in worship that distracts from that or that is undirected by God. the simplicity of the altar. Can you imagine a better way to emphasize that it doesn't matter what the altar looks like? The important thing is what's on the altar. The sacrifice. It's the sacrifice that matters. The pagans had beautiful altars, but they were worshiping the wrong God and the wrong sacrifice. And so we see God drawing attention to the sacrifice by having a plain, simple, unadorned altar 
And let's just look at the sacrifices for a minute to gain an understanding. There's two types of sacrifices mentioned here. Now, the book of Leviticus, it describes Israel's sacrificial system in great detail. Many types of sacrifices. But the two mentioned here are two of the most important. The first was the burnt offering. Sometimes it might even be called the whole burnt offering because the entire sacrifice was burned with fire. This was a sacrifice of atonement. It paid for sin. This was necessary because the altar was the place where God would meet with his people. Anyone who approached the altar was coming into God's holy presence. But we're all sinners and God hates sin. So before anybody could meet with God, something had to be done about that sin. That was the reason for the burnt offering in which a perfect animal was placed on the altar and consumed by fire. Let, let me read a description of what would take place here. The worshiper laid his hands on the head of the animal. It is with this act that we get at the heart of the significance of the burnt offering. It was not some magical transference between the offering of sacrifice and the animal, but a symbolic identification. This step was crucial because when the animal was sacrificed, the death of the animal took the place of the death of the worshiper. The assumption behind this was that the worshiper was a sinner coming into the presence of the Holy Lord. As a, as a sinner, the human deserved the death, but the animal stood in his or her place. The worshiper slaughtered the animal, implying the slitting of the throat. After the death of the animal, the blood was collected and sprinkled along the side of the altar, and the entire animal was placed on the altar and burned completely with the smoke rising up to the Lord. That was what took place. The one who really deserved to die was the sinner who offered the sacrifice. But instead, the sacrificial animal, usually a lamb or a goat, died in the sinner's place. And God accepted this as a payment, as an atonement for sin. The second type of sacrifice that God mentioned to Moses here was the fellowship offering sometimes called a peace offering because the name is Shalom. The fellowship offering also dealt with sin, but it had a different emphasis. The fellowship offering, it showed the relationship that God had with his people once atonement had been made for sin. Fellowship offerings were given on various occasions, Sometimes to thank God for a special blessing or a special answer to prayer. And sometimes for no particular reason at all except to praise God for his glory. And whatever the reason, the fellowship offering was a tangible reminder that the people were no longer separated from God. 
but had fellowship with him. And the difference in the offerings was that the fellowship offering was not consumed by fire. The burnt offering, as I said, was burnt to a crisp. But the fellowship offering, only the fat was cut off and burned. In other words, the choicest part of the animal was offered up to God. But the rest was cooked until it was tender. And it was eaten by the worshipers as a way to celebrate God and His grace. The fellowship offering was a feast to the glory of God. Uh, here's what uh, uh, a theologian has written about it. He says, Shalom, after all, refers to the condition that results from being in a covenant relationship with God. Sin disrupts shalom. And so the fellowship offering describes the condition that results once that breach, once that sin has been resolved. And as we will see, the sacrifice was a joyous celebration, a kind of a almost like a party where the priests and the worshipers enjoyed a sumptuous meal in the presence of God. And so what is significant is that God mentions these sacrifices almost immediately after giving the law. And you wonder why. God gave His people the Ten Commandments for all of life, ordering them to obey. However, he knew they would not, could not obey. And so he provided a way for them to atone for their sins and come back into fellowship with him. And both the burnt offering and the fellowship offering were for sinners in need of salvation. By providing a way to make atonement, God gave his people everything they needed for salvation. He brought them out of bondage in Egypt. He told them how he wanted them to live. He sent a mediator to make sure they understood well enough to obey. But God knew his people would break his law. And so he gave them sacrifices as a way to pay for the sin and reconcile them to himself. From the very beginning of scripture it seems. God has always provided his people with an atonement for sin. He did it in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve had sinned, God clothed, clothed them with the skins of animals. A sacrifice was made for their sin. There was an altar again after the great flood. The world had been judged for its wickedness. Noah and his family had been saved. And when he set foot on dry land, he made a sacrifice to God. The uh, ancient leaders, the patriarchs of Israel, all built altars, as did Moses and David. There was always an altar where people could make atonement for sin. This was all preparing the way for Jesus to make atonement once and for all. You know, the Bible says, this is out of Romans, God presented him, Jesus, 
as a propitiation through faith in his blood. A propitiation is a difficult word. What does that even mean? Well, I, I can't fit it all into, I, I had a hard time trying to find a replacement word to explain it. So what this word means is it's the removal of divine wrath. It means that uh, that Jesus' death takes away God's wrath from me, the sinner. That's what that term propitiation means. That God's wrath is no longer on me. Christ was the go-between, the mediator who suffered law's judgment, law's penalties in my place. Another way to describe Jesus' work when he was crucified is that he made the atoning sacrifice on the altar of God. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to refer to Jesus as our altar out of Hebrews. He, Jesus, is the burnt offering that made atonement for our sins as well as the fellowship offering that has reconciled us to God. Everyone who has been saved has accepted Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. Whatever sins we've committed, whatever blatant violations of the Ten Commandments, whatever inward sins that our loveless, idolatrous, covetous heart has committed, Jesus died on the cross to save that kind of sinner, me. And no one is excluded. There is salvation for every sinner who comes to Christ. Finally, I wanted to point out that the worship of God should be intimate, but never casual. And by casual, I'm not talking about attire, but attitude. We live in a culture, especially here in America, where people think of almost a radical informality. And we tend to prize informality and casualness. And because of this, I think that that we struggle sometimes to apprehend the weight, the, the, the glory, the supremeness, the otherness of God, the holiness. We have an attitude that we should be able to come as we want, go as we want, you know, and do what we please. That's the typical attitude. I think it's one of the hardest things for us being rights-focused, entitlement-assuming. Hardest, One of the hardest things for us to grasp that we cannot approach God any way we want. We think we can, and I would say that sometimes we, we try, but I would argue that we cannot worship God in a way that pleases Him if we don't do it in the way that He's told us to. Why? Well, God is God, and he wants us to worship him on his terms. But you know, 
Worship is not only on his terms, but according to his provision. He condescends to speak to us. He reveals himself on every page of scripture. And I think we scarcely realize what an act of gracious condescension it is that the God who makes the mountains, who makes the mountains smoke and tremble, would condescend to speak to us and we can know him. So worship is God's way on God's terms. But he makes a way. You know, we've gone through the Ten Commandments before. And I would say that we all try to keep them in the fear of the Lord. But you know what? We don't succeed. We all break them. We need an altar. We need a place where sacrifices can be burnt to atone for our sins. And you see how gracious God is? He says, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make a way for you. Makes me think of that song, God will make a way. Because I know what you like. Well, I know what you're like and what you're going to do. And we see that we need altars no more. Because Christ himself was the sacrifice once and for all. So that with Paul, as Paul said, you know what sacrifice you need to give now? It's the sacrifice of your own life in worship of Him. Not to atone for your sins, but to follow hard after God. That's the sacrifice now He asks of us. He sacrificed Himself for us and our sacrifice is to live our lives hard after Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you so much for your word that teaches us what we ought to do, how we ought to come before you, and how we can be right before you. Teach us as a people how to fear and worship you. May we fasten our eyes on you. May we comprehend the greatness of the sacrifice. Once and for all, the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made and the work He has done for us. We give You praise and we exalt Your holy name. Cause Your name be honored and remembered in our midst.